Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online. This week on the podcast, we're looking at how the pandemic has affected children and young people's mental health. I'm talking to Dr. Elaine Lockhart, Chair of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, Children and Young People's Faculty, and a consultant with the Learning Disability Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service in Glasgow. In this conversation, Elaine explains some of the problems that children and young people of different ages may present with, and what the possible long-term consequences of the pandemic could be. We also discuss the shortage of specialist services, which result in long waits for children needing support, and what this means for GPs and primary care as well as what needs to happen in both the shorter and longer term to address this problem. And we talk about the impact social media can have on children and young people's well-being. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. Before we start, just a quick reminder that MIMS Learning Live is taking place in London on Friday the 9th of June. This free one-day event is organised by our colleagues on MIMS Learning. There'll be five streams providing CPD learning on topics including women's health, dermatology, cardiovascular medicine, respiratory care and much more. You can register for your free place and find out more information including the full programme at mimslearninglive.com. I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr Elaine Lockhart, who is a consultant with Learning Disability CAMS in Glasgow and Chair of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, Children and Young People Faculty. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Elaine. Thank you very much. Lovely to meet you. I was just wondering, before we start, could you explain a bit about your background and your involvement with children's and young people's mental health? Yes, I did a few years postgraduate training in a range of specialties. I was probably thinking of being a GP. And then when I was working in paediatrics, I had a lecture by a child psychiatrist. And that was just something that pulled me right in. I'd always enjoyed psychiatry as a student, but I really loved to get behind what was going on in children's lives, particularly those who were coming up to the hospital repeatedly or there seemed to be more to the presentation that met the eye. So I then went and studied. Um, So I worked in Ireland, UK, France, and then most of my psychiatry training has been in the West of Scotland, where I specialised in children and young people psychiatry. One of the reasons I was keen to talk to you is about sort of the impact the pandemic has had on children and young people's mental health. So we kind of know that mental health issues in children have, have sort of been increasing in recent years, but obviously the pandemic's had a big impact. What sort of problems and issues are we seeing in children and young people as a result of this? Yes, yeah, sadly, we're still seeing the impact of the pandemic and the lockdowns on children, young people's mental health. We know that their mental health was getting worse. We have some very good prevalence data on large studies across England and across uh, the UK. But what the um, lockdowns in particular did was for the most vulnerable children in particular, was remove them from lots of different people and services that are supportive in their lives. So the lack of contact with school and that routine and predictability and contact with trusted teachers. And for some people, particularly GPs will know where home life can be very difficult. Sometimes schools are the most supportive place for them to go. Lack of contact with friends and with those services that support the most vulnerable children, young people. So I work with children with learning disability and severe autism. And for those children, having that structure and support and routine and predictability in their lives was completely taken away from them. And it placed them and their families in hugely challenging situations. And what seems to be really underlying the main problem has been a generalised increase in anxiety. So we know we all felt 
worried at the time. So the collective levels of anxiety in the country increased. So children, as we know, will be hugely affected by what's going on with the adults in their lives. So adults were worried. And also we had people becoming sick in in their families. But I think that the anxiety then was reflected in everything from increased levels to the clinical degree, that increase in eating disorders, increase in self-harm. So particularly for those who were most affected, we saw initially a drop in referrals to our services, a drop in presentations, and then a rapid increase in crisis presentations. You've talked about some of the problems that we see, but are there sort of particular problems that affect children and young people at different ages? So, you know, for example, are there certain issues that are more common in teenagers and certain problems that you might see in younger children? Yeah, well, thinking about the younger children, I think um, people in primary care will recognise that schools are talking about new starts. So children starting primary school after the couple of years of the lockdowns were less ready to start schools. We saw that impact on normal, typical development and that lack of contact with other children and toddlers their own age, as well as other families and access to educational and recreational activities. So they were less ready to start school and that that's had an impact on them from the youngest age. Also that disconnect from services that might have picked up difficulties earlier on. So one of the things, particularly with young children, would be those with neurodevelopmental conditions like autism or ADHD will really struggle within mainstream education and within the wider community if their needs aren't recognised and they don't get the support. In teenagers, as I say, anxiety levels became higher. But what we saw in particular was an increase in generalised anxiety. For some, they became really quite depressed, but it was really that increase in self-harm and eating disorders, which was the most kind of visible manifestation of this increase. Are those sort of problems starting to ease off now? Are they still things that are real and present in young people and when they might present to their GP, for example? We're still unfortunately seeing that ongoing increase, for example, with children, young people with eating disorders. You know, I worked in a hospital for over 20 years where we would admit children who needed physical stabilization with an eating disorder, and the numbers surged during 2021 to 2022. But I know that they haven't settled back to pre-COVID levels. In the same way, we saw more young people coming in with self-harm and that crisis presentation, again, seems to be more common. So it's that idea that everything became so much more destabilized. Everything that contains a child, a young person and their mental health and well-being was rocked by the lockdowns. And in the same way, you know, the most vulnerable children, like children with learning disability, are those where there may be significant parental difficulties with health and disability. The impact still continues. And unfortunately, it has been added to by the cost of living crisis. So it's just, again, the worries about families and the stress on parents and carers continues. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, whether there was kind of a socioeconomic sort of impact of this, whether, you know, more deprived areas, you've seen more cases of children experiencing problems as a result of the pandemic. But obviously, as you say, it's quite hard now to distinguish it from the pandemic and what's going on with the cost of living crisis. It's always been two crises back to back. Yeah, I mean, there's a really clear connection between high levels of deprivation and social exclusion and higher rates of mental health conditions and illnesses. And we know that social inequality had been increasing for those decades before the pandemic, and that is most toxic to mental health. So there's no doubt that there's a real correlation that if you're living in the most deprived 
areas, and I'm sure GPs will be familiar with this. And unfortunately, it is the inverse care law that actually we're not particularly often seeing more children coming from the areas of higher deprivation into specialist services. You mentioned about eating disorders there, and I was just going to ask you about something. Earlier this year, the Royal College of Psychiatrists warned that eating disorder services in England kind of been flooded with referrals by children and young people over the past three years. So it does suggest that they're becoming more common. Is this just because of the pandemic or is there something else going on there, do you think? I think it's a combination of factors. In in our area, um, I'm sure like in primary care, there's never an easy answer to this. I wish I could tell you that we knew exactly A causes B, but we know that's not true. It does seem that it was a perfect storm during the pandemic that created the increase in eating disorders. And as I say, all those factors I mentioned before, and that loss of control, children, young people, for all they might moan and groan about day-to-day routines, actually thrive in that predictable, structured routine that we have for them during the week. So I think that with the increased anxiety absolutely contributed. Unfortunately, as well, we do see behaviours like self-harm and eating disorders are contagious in terms of if you're exposed to it, either through your friendship groups or online, there's a risk that you're going to engage in that kind of activity as well. And then, of course, we have to think about online harm and just how you can go down that rabbit hole of really harmful online content that is promoting eating disorders or maybe promoting that sense of belonging by engaging in behaviours like self-harm or restricted eating. Obviously, social media, that, I mean, is a massive problem. I mean, that's like we could do a whole podcast in itself on the impact that social media could have on on children. And obviously, it's something as a parent is something that I personally worry about all the time, because I didn't grow up in this kind of environment. And it's quite hard to navigate from that point of view. But how big of an impact does social media have on young people's mental health? And what sort of problem is it causing? Is it just really if you get sucked into those things, that it's an issue? Or is it just more widely using social media as a problem. Yes. And I suppose I'll start off with saying how amazing social media can be. Yes. And how particularly during those lockdowns, it was a bit of a lifesaver for lots of children, young people and adults to be able to continue to connect with other people, to be able to find things to do that they found interesting or entertaining or distracting from all the worries that they had at the time. But thinking about the harmful aspects of it, the first thing I would say is for every minute a child is on a device, Let's think about what they're not doing. They're not outside exercising. They're not meeting up with friends face to face, spending time with families, getting involved with exercise or sport. So I think that's the first thing I would say. And that's, I think, a real problem. I think we have a problem, as we know, with childhood obesity, with engaging them with activities and sport that they like, that they will do regularly, with having them, for example, thinking about the youngest children and their developmental delay. You know, we need to engage socially for our brains to develop and looking at a plastic screen is not going to be enough for that. And then you have the much more toxic aspect and how you know social media sites can engage young people in a way that just builds on those algorithms that leads them down certain rabbit holes and that exposes them to really harmful content. So that's why we've been arguing that we're working on the colleagues and the self on the online harm bill, but we really need to understand better what's happening to developing brains and young people who are spending hours on devices. And we need to get access to data for research. And that's something that the companies really need to be signing up to deliver on, as well as protecting children and young people from harmful content. Is there enough research going on about that, do you think? 
There is research and um, it hasn't been as entirely clear cut. I mean, somebody suggested to me recently, we should just tell everyone who's a young person not to go on a device. And you think, well, come on, <laughs> no, <laughs> try that one. I, I, I do try that. <laughs> it doesn't work very yeah. easily. And I, and I do think actually it's really helpful to be having those conversations with your children, mm. which is, look, this is fantastic what you can do with this tiny little gadget in your hand. But, you know, let's use it wisely. Let's think about if I gave you a sports car, I wouldn't let you just take the keys and head off onto the motorway. There's a lot of good stuff about it, but also being really clear about how many hours of the day you should or shouldn't be on it, how it can really mess up with young people's sleep. And that's essential for their growth and development. And also, if they're getting any hassle online from people, whether they know them in real life or not, how are they going to manage that? Can they come and talk to you about it? Keeping that conversation going is probably the most important thing we can do with our children and young people. Coming back to the pandemic, though, do you think there's going to be sort of a long term impact on children and young people's mental health? Is it going to be something we're going to see the fallout going on for years and years? Well, we're certainly still seeing it now. We know that uh, services aren't there to meet the need. And unfortunately, what happens with that is and GPs will be so aware of long waiting lists that we have children, young people sitting and their families waiting in distress where things can only get worse for some of them. And if we could intervene earlier, then the difficulties wouldn't become so complex and entrenched. I can't see an end to that in the next couple of years because we just seem to be in a really bad situation there. Overall, children and young people, I would say, are very resilient. I think they're hugely affected by their life circumstances. So if people in their families are getting on with things, are being supportive and they've re-engaged with education and social activities, most of them will do just fine. One of the big problems that we've got, as you, you mentioned there, is access to specialist services. I know that waiting lists are really, really long for CAMs. As the Royal College of Psychiatry said earlier this year, real problems with access to specialist services for eating disorders for young people as well. Is it a real postcode lottery or is it just like there's just long waits everywhere? And how big of a problem do you think this is? It's variable across the country. I think we need to be upfront about that. I think we know that historically the funding to specialist services for children and young people is tiny. I think the last time I looked, it's about one fourteenth of the mental health spend. Mental health gets about 14% of the total NHS spend. So it explains why the workforce is tiny. It takes a long time to train psychiatrists, clinical psychologists and nurse specialists to a, an advanced degree. So we're really behind the curve with our workforce development. We really need that cost of workforce plan. But also... The impact of what's happening in local communities is enormous. So cutbacks to what can be offered by local authorities within school and communities and social services will have a big impact on how children are doing. We need to really try and think, what can we do quickly for the children and young people right now, as well as thinking in the medium long term about a really good specialist workforce and community-based services that are going to meet the need? Is there anything we can do in the short term? I was going to, one of the things I was quite keen to ask you is about what does this all mean for GPs? So if they've got patients that need specialist support, obviously, if they can't get that, then they're going to be coming back to their GPs. Is there anything GPs can do to help support these young people while they're waiting for access to specialist services? I think it's really hard for GPs. And yeah. anything I'm saying, I'm saying with that knowledge that GPs are already really under pressure with demand because our work tends to be slow and takes time. 
So that's not that very helpful to a GP saying, actually, if you could spend half an hour with a young person, you might really get to what's going on. But I do think that uh, there are a couple of things that are really important. GPs are very good for having that holistic approach to the child or young person in front of them and often may know their families and certainly the communities in which they live. So just thinking about what else is going on there, what strengths and resources are there? Is there anyone locally, either within primary care or other services that could support this child or young person in the meantime? What helpful websites and online services could be helpful in the meantime? And I think if GPs could do one thing as well, if there are parents who are there with their child or young person, helping them to absolutely spend time with their child and to support them while they're waiting. I think sometimes parents are frightened when they hear about mental health and mental illness, but there's so much that they can do that can be helpful. And that might be everything from looking to the kind of day-to-day routine, what is it that helps this child feel good about themselves? How are they making sure that they're getting decent diet, getting outside for a bit of fresh air, getting some exercise, spending time with people who are good for them, checking in with school, seeing if there's anything there that could help them. And it may be that school is um, where some of the anxiety is coming from, seeing what can be offered there. There may be counsellors within school. Some areas have youth access hubs, which are fantastic. There can be just walk-in services. I think there is a range of services. I think it's hard for a GP to know exactly what's available right there and then when you've got a family in front of them. So having somebody within that primary care network or practice who knows what's available and can signpost families there in the meantime sounds really like a good idea. I also worry that many children, young people on the waiting list probably don't need specialist mental health service, but it's in the absence of anything else. And that just adds to the whole problem we're in right now. So if we could get earlier help locally, that would make a big difference to those children in front of you, but also it can help with waiting times for those who absolutely need the specialist services. Is there any way GPs can tell who needs specialist services and who doesn't? Like you say, is it just a case because they don't have anywhere else to send them? And in that case, what needs to happen to make sure there are better local services? Well, one of the things we need to think about is with particularly adolescents, that's a time in life when the strength of feelings can be very strong. And I think that GPs can pick out whether it might be about a child being presented with a mental health problem that may be much more to do with the pains of growing up and being a teenager. And that might be, you know, stress to do with relationships or school or what's happening in the family, so that maybe some things can be more amenable to being addressed, for example, within schools or within some third sector services. What specialist services are good at is for children, young people who have moderate to severe mental health problems and where there may be risk to themselves or others because of that. So that's where it's really getting in the way of their day-to-day life. They might not be able to get out to school. They might not be eating enough. They might be engaging in behaviours that are really risky in terms of self-harm. So it, you know, it's having such a, a severe impact that it's preventing them from getting on and developing and learning and engaging socially. And in terms of local services, what do you think needs to happen So you talked about the fact that we need to do something. I mean, GPs will be really familiar with this, workforce shortage, not enough people to do the job. So we need to do something in the short term until we build up that workforce. What do you think needs to happen in the NHS so that there are services and provision there for young people? I think we need to be supporting developments like youth access hubs, school-based services, 
bringing in the third sector to provide quick support for children and young people, particularly including children where you might think that there may be in your developmental condition like autism. You shouldn't need to wait for a diagnosis to access help. School can be very well placed to support you with that. Or there's a National Autistic Society that can provide support with parents. There may be local parenting groups that can help families where they're really struggling with a child's behaviour, not quite sure why. The main message I would give is rather than waiting for an assessment and diagnosis that could take months or years, getting in there with what's available locally to support families shouldn't be paused, you know, until you get that diagnosis. You're based in Scotland, but in England now, we've got primary care networks. And obviously, some of the funding under the Additional Roles Reimbursement Scheme is for mental health workers, which are joint funded. And one of the posts they can have is a child and adolescent mental health. Do you have any sort of sense about how that's working and whether it's making a difference? We've got an example of some places where there are specialist mental health clinicians for children, young people working and based within primary care. And that seems to be working very well insofar as even offering up to three sessions within primary care from someone who is a specialist clinician has often been enough for that child or young person. I think only about a quarter go on to require a specialist mental health service after that. The challenge I would say is, I don't know that we can find enough people to do that work in all the primary care networks. But I do know we have other mental health practitioners who are based within primary care at the moment to think about adults with their mental health needs. So it may be we should be building on what we have and scoping out what would somebody, for example, like a nurse or a psychologist working within primary care need to be able to see an under 18 year old? What training, what support and supervision do they need? So we need to build on what it should be happening with integrated care systems. We should be linking up much more closely together and thinking, okay, if we can't develop a clinical workforce rapidly, why don't we really work on developing on the workforce we have? The whole issue here is it's it's not just about health, as it you've talked about the importance of school as well. And so obviously, quite clearly, if we're going to address this as a society, as a country, then there needs to be policies that cross education and other areas as well as health. What would you like to see sort of happen on a wider scale to help improve children and young people's mental health? I would really like integrated care systems to focus on the needs of infants, children and young people, because that gives us the opportunity to think across the agencies. And of all our citizens, our youngest ones are most affected by their home and community setups. So what I would love to think about is that we would have people working together with families with infants and young children that we link up between, for example, nurseries and health visitors and third sector organisations, for example, in detecting anything that's going on in having parenting support where there may be difficulties or actually for any parent who needs a bit of help. It might be just something that uh, would meet a need very quickly so that children, young people getting into school are ready for schools. And I mean primary school and the move to secondary school and that people know them well enough so that schools then at least are more informed about what are the challenges that the children are coming in with. But also I think within schools so much more could be done if they were sufficiently resourced 
unfortunately, what we've seen is that there's been, you know, a reduction in support for those with additional support needs and that that has a huge impact on those individual children, but also on the teacher's ability to be able to provide an appropriate education and support for them. We have the mental health support teams in schools. I think we're maybe up to about a quarter heading for a third of schools to have that mostly focused on secondary schools. I think that's helpful, but it's just that broader multi-agency community-based support that I think will be much more helpful. Just to finish off, are there any key bits of advice you'd give to GPs, you know, if they have got children and young people or, or their parents even coming in to see them worried about their child? What should they bear in mind or consider when they're dealing with these sorts of consultations and patients? I think the main thing I would want a GP to feel confident in doing is that holistic assessment in terms of understanding a child might be presented with a mental health problem, but actually it might be more to do with what's happening in the family or the school or the community, or it might be part of teenage life where although they might be presenting with high levels of distress, this may not be a clinical problem. And just to think about what else might be available that's not necessarily about a referral to a specialist mental health service. I think it would be great if GPs then, through their other contacts, had links with their local services, whether that's within mental health uh, for children, young people, but also within local authorities and the education system, maybe through someone working in primary care, a way of connecting a family with some support much more quickly than having that connection that if they're really worried about a child or young person, they should be able to get an appointment much more quickly if they need it. Is there anything else that you think it's important for GPs to know? I think in a way it's nearly the other way around. I would really be interested to know from GPs what is it that we could do. So rather than saying just take our patients and just cut your waiting list, is there anything in terms of training, connection, supervision, support that we could offer that we could do in the short term rather than waiting for our workforce planning? You know, that's much more of a medium or long term development, isn't it? What would really help now if we said, look, we don't have enough child psychiatrists, we're not going to have enough child psychiatrists for many years, and uh, we're still having to really work on that. What would allow you to do this work? Uh, how could we support you with that? Thank you very much for your time, Elaine. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks to Elaine for speaking with me this week. If you enjoy listening to Talking General Practice, please think about giving us a rating or leaving a review. I'm back next week for our regular news review, so do join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up to date with all the latest news affecting general practice, including what's been going on at this week's UK LMC's conference, on our website at gponline.com.